Welcome to Fractured, a podcast for anyone who wants to gain a deeper understanding of the modern refugee crisis and migration movement. My name is Sonia Nanji Kerman, and I'm a co-founder of the Refocus Media Labs Foundation. And together with my co-host Joel Hernandez, an editor of the Mixed Migration Abdo, we bring you a new episode every two weeks, either in the form of a deep analytical dive by Joel or as a storytelling piece produced by me. Each episode is supported by Refocus Citizen Journalists. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Fractured Podcast, a collaboration between Refocus Media Labs and Mixed Migration Ebdo. I'm your co-host, Joel Hernandez, and today I wanted to run a review of the last year's worth of Mixed Migration press coverage I've assembled since I launched Mixed Migration Ebdo almost a year ago. If today's recording goes well, I will try to incorporate MMH more closely in future episodes of Fractured, so I look forward to hearing your feedback. For those who might be unfamiliar, Mixed Migration Ibdo is a newsletter that I started in mid-June 2021, where I collect and collate international press coverage of migration policymaking, relevant events, and significant contributing factors to migration, such as conflict, poverty, and environmental stressors. I've been looking for the right formula to take MMH beyond just a weekly combination of news and find ways to draw out ongoing themes. Hopefully, Fractured might become, over time, an effective vehicle for this. For now, I hope you'll find this year in review informative and useful. Following the format I use in MMH, I have broken down this episode by geography into five sections, each corresponding to a continent. I will start by covering events in Asia, primarily the evolution of displacement in and out of Afghanistan and in and out of Myanmar. I'll follow by tracking events in Sub-Saharan Africa, focusing mainly on conflict in Ethiopia and on drought in the Horn of Africa. From there, we'll move north to the Middle East and North Africa region and review the evolution of Yemen civil war and of refugee mobility and immobility in Turkey and North Africa. From there, we'll move north and west and discuss the nihilistic, unworkable, and evidence-free methods that the European Union and the United States have used over the last year to try and fail to deter irregular migration. And from there, we'll move on to South America and review how the displacement crisis out of Venezuela, the largest in the world until Russia invaded Ukraine, continues affecting the region and how other emerging displacement crises out of the Caribbean can and will continue to affect regional migration policymaking. So let's get started with Asia where I mainly want to focus on two countries, Afghanistan and Myanmar. Both countries share long-standing security, governance, and protracted displacement issues, and in both countries, those long-standing problems got worse over the last year. Afghanistan's present and future were dramatically affected by last August's withdrawal of NATO forces from Afghanistan and the subsequent collapse of its internationally recognized government to a resurgent Taliban. The return of the Taliban to power in Kabul seemed, initially, to fall a bit short of our worst expectations. Officials seemed sufficiently aware of the need to court international public opinion 
and made it seem like they would keep some of Afghan civil society's gains, including gains in women's rights, in place. Over the months, however, this has proved to be a false impression. The Taliban refused to resume girls' schooling, restricted women's access to the workplace, and more recently mandated that women wear a full burqa when out in public, but also that they spend as little time out in public as possible. Compounding these losses in human security, Western states have withdrawn not just their occupation forces, but also financial support to Afghanistan, which, until last August, had kept the Afghan economy alive. This, and the imposition of new financial sanctions, has made it extremely difficult for ordinary Afghans to access livelihoods. Teachers and administrators no longer receive salaries. Farmers can no longer bring produce to market. Traders can no longer trade across borders. And humanitarian organizations are also struggling to sustain programming in Afghanistan, punishing the country's most vulnerable even further. This has all affected migration patterns in multiple ways, some intuitive and others a bit more unexpected. Although withdrawing Western states promised to continue supporting at-risk Afghans left behind in the evacuation, they have done little since then to live up to that promise. The United States evacuated about 76,000 Afghans last August, but it left behind another 80,000 or so who had either already received or were applying for a special immigrant visa, or SIV. Since last August, only another 9,000 Afghans have been resettled to the U.S., far less than the total number of SIV holders, which is itself only a tiny subset of the total at-risk population in Afghanistan. If the U.S. has done little, Europe has done even less. Almost as soon as Afghanistan's internationally recognized government fell, the EU sent delegations to Central Asia to cajole regional governments into admitting displaced Afghans and containing them there. Turkey began building a wall along its border with Iran, and Turkish patrols began pushing back Afghan arrivals from Iran, without a word of condemnation from European authorities, whose interests these pushbacks served. In recent months, videos circulating online showing the poor treatment of Afghans in Iran, combined with large-scale summary deportations back to Afghanistan, mainly of day laborers just trying to earn money to keep their families alive, has led to protest at Iranian diplomatic representations in Afghan cities. Afghan refugees in Pakistan have also staged protests in recent weeks, charging that UNHCR is ignoring their applications for basic documentation and leaving them without identification in their exile in Pakistan. For millions of Afghans, life has become a choice between crushing poverty in Afghanistan or invisibility and exploitation in Iran or Pakistan. Emigration is also an issue for those Afghans with means who might normally be able to afford a plane ticket out of the country, whether to emigrate permanently or just to visit another country, for example, for medical treatment. Passport issuance has been troubled since the Taliban took over, with passport offices throughout the country opening and closing again as authorities tried and failed to keep up with demand. This has kept Afghans needing medical procedures abroad, for example, from accessing treatment, and it's also given criminals the opportunity to defraud ordinary Afghans awaiting a passport by selling fake application documents or by selling fake application documentation. As Afghanistan nears a year since the return of Taliban rule, human security outcomes in Afghanistan are bleak, and the prospect of finding opportunity by emigrating is all but null. 
In Myanmar, we've seen two parallel crises pile up on top of one another over the last year. The first is the Rohingya displacement crisis, which has been problematic for decades, but which entered a new phase in late 2016 when clashes broke out between Rohingya armed groups and Burmese security forces, and the Burmese military retaliated not against Rohingya armed groups, but against the Rohingya people, sending close to a million Rohingya into exile in Bangladesh. Bangladesh was generous in keeping its borders open and in offering protection from the Burmese military to arriving Rohingya refugees, but it hasn't offered much more. Five years on, Rohingya are confined to crowded and unsanitary camps, not allowed to work and earn an income, not allowed to study or even to set up their own schools. Over the last year, the Bangladeshi government has tried to relocate Rohingya refugees to a reception facility in Basanchar, an island in the Bay of Bengal, where the brick-and-mortar infrastructure is certainly more solid than the ramshackle shelters and refugee camps in mainland Bangladesh, but that effectively serves as an island prison. As their numbers have increased to about 25,000, Rohingya living in Basanchar have complained that they can't access medical care, that insecurity is rampant, that there are no livelihoods, and that there is no meaningful protection. Until recent months, some Rohingya tried to improve their prospects by migrating onward into India. In recent weeks, however, that flow seems to have reversed, and Indian authorities are now detaining growing numbers of Rohingya refugees who are trying to migrate irregularly from India into Bangladesh, rather than the other way around, as conditions get worse in India and as growing numbers of Rohingya are being deported directly to Myanmar from India. Authorities in Malaysia and Indonesia have also occasionally reported intercepting boats carrying Rohingya refugees toward their shores. This is where the Rohingya situation intersects with Myanmar's other displacement situation, the one that was triggered by the February 2021 military coup against Myanmar's democratically elected government. That coup deposed Myanmar's flawed but arguably legitimate and popular government, putting the military back in charge of the country after about a decade of emerging democracy. The coup triggered determined resistance from the get-go, both peaceful civil disobedience in Myanmar's cities and armed resistance in its farther-flung provinces, with the military making no distinction and ruthlessly cracking down on both. As a result, hundreds of thousands of Burmese nationals have become internally displaced and thousands more have sought to flee repression by crossing porous borders into Thailand or trying to sail to Malaysia or Indonesia. However, neither Thailand nor Malaysia nor Indonesia ever signed the 1951 Refugee Convention, which means that UNHCR has very little leverage to get them to comply with international refugee law. In better years, these countries might have been able to absorb arrivals, but with their economies struggling to recover after the coronavirus pandemic, they are struggling to provide for their own nationals, let alone for new arrivals. Myanmar's exiled National Unity Government, or NUG, has issued statements committing to receive Rohingya refugees if and when it returns to power, and to prosecute cases against those who have committed crimes against humanity and genocide against Rohingya communities in 2016 and 2017. However, it's not clear when or if the NUG will ever return to power, as the military has used brute force effectively, if reprehensibly, to stay in power. Rohingya advocacy groups, for their part, have insisted they have just one demand, to be allowed to return, in safety and in dignity, 
to their homes in Myanmar's western Rakhine state. This closes off two of the three standard solutions to protracted refugee crises, local integration in countries of first asylum, in this case Bangladesh, and resettlement to other countries. However, it may take years, if not decades, for democracy to return to Myanmar, and if the military government falls anytime soon, it's not likely that the newly restored civilian government would make it their top priority to repatriate a minority group marginalized and squeezed out of Myanmar for decades. Before we leave Asia, I want to make a quick visit to one more point of interest. This is Sri Lanka, which seems to have hit rock bottom in its economic crisis and will now suffer at least a few painful years of economic restructuring. India hosts tens of thousands of Sri Lankan irregular migrants, whom it won't grant status but also won't deport, and who look set for more years of living in limbo. It's not clear how many Sri Lankans will try to improve their lot by migrating to India in the coming years, but it's an issue I'll keep an eye on in future issues of Mixed Migration Ibdul. Moving on from Asia, I next want to recap the last year's events in Sub-Saharan Africa, focusing in particular on the Horn of Africa, where a perfect storm of conflict and environmental stress are bearing down on vulnerable populations, creating pressures that will last for years. In November of 2020, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed declared war on the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, which governs Ethiopia's northwestern province of Tigray, leading to about 18 months of brutal fighting in northwestern Ethiopia. As the front line swayed from inside of Tigray into Amhara state to the south and into a far state to the east, fighters took the fight to civilians. No party in the conflict has clean hands. Human rights organizations have documented atrocities committed by all sides, although the Ethiopian government bears an extra measure of responsibility for subjecting Tigray to a de facto blockade, shutting down transit in and out of the region, cutting off communications and banking, and blocking humanitarian access. As a result, Tigray's healthcare system has ground to a halt, malnutrition keeps rising, and hundreds, probably thousands, have died of preventable disease. A ceasefire has kept guns mostly silent in recent months, but there's a long road ahead between the current truce and a lasting peace. TPLF leadership continues accusing Ethiopian authorities of blockading humanitarian access, and INGOs have only recently been able to provide a fraction of the assistance they intended to deliver. Meanwhile, agitators in Ethiopia continue calling for a final attack on Tigray, while agitators in Tigray call for an attack on western Tigray, currently occupied by Amharan militias allied to the central government. Because Tigray is effectively blockaded, the conflict in Tigray has not generated mass refugee flows into neighboring countries. In late May, UNHCR registered less than 75,000 Tigrayan refugees in Sudan, a significant number by all means, but a modest one compared to other regional displacement crises. There is nothing to celebrate here. This limited displacement only means that millions of civilians suffering in Tigray have nowhere to go. Eritrean refugees in Tigray have also suffered immensely through this war, as Eritrean troops invaded Tigray in alliance with Ethiopian forces they attacked refugee camps hosting Eritrean refugees, committing atrocities against already displaced people who had nowhere else to go. There is an important point to be retained here. Suffering can lead to displacement in some cases, but doesn't always do so. It's important that we acknowledge the suffering in Tigray as human beings who are concerned with the well-being of others, 
as human beings who are concerned with, concerned with regional stability in northwestern Ethiopia, and as human beings who are interested in migration specifically. However, decisions to migrate are usually the product of many factors and conditioned not just by suffering in the country or region of origin, but also by the possibility of fleeing those conditions, a possibility that, as of mid-2022, remains mostly out of reach for Tigrayans and for Eritrean refugees in Tigray. The modest scale of displacement is not at all an indicator that the crisis is of low relevance. Quite the contrary. Now, if the suffering in Ethiopia wasn't enough, it's taking place as drought and crop failure threatens the whole Horn of Africa with impoverishment and food insecurity. Farmers and pastoralists in southeastern Ethiopia, Somalia, and in northern Kenya have now suffered four consecutive failed rainy seasons, leaving water wells exhausted, crops withering, and livestock unable to find vegetation to forage. Swarms of locusts have been ravaging crops in the Horn of Africa since early 2020, as climate change has expanded their breeding grounds and fostered spectacular population growth. Although food insecurity and immiseration in the Horn of Africa may not lead to large-scale migration flows to other parts of the world, remember, most forced migration is regional, not global, in scale, it will make host communities less resilient and host countries less willing to continue hosting refugees, let alone open their borders to new arrivals. For years, Kenya has been threatening to close the Dadaab and Kakuma refugee camps along its border with Somalia. It's difficult to imagine Kenyan authorities reversing this stance, all while managing drought and displacement within Kenya. Moving on from the Horn of Africa, let's look at the Middle East and North Africa, starting with a quick crossing of the Bab al-Mandeb Straits to Yemen. Yemen has been in a state of multi-faction civil war between Yemen's internationally recognized government, IRG, and Ansar Allah, a factional movement commonly known as the Houthis, since 2014. In 2015, a regional coalition led by Saudi Arabia entered the war on the IRG's side, pummeling northwestern Yemen with indiscriminate airstrikes and blockading its ports. Yemen's civil war has left 80% of the Yemeni population dependent on humanitarian aid and wrecked Yemen's healthcare and education systems. The pressure on Yemeni civilians was somewhat relieved this spring, as a UN brokered Ramadan truce took hold on April 2 and has mostly held up since then. Much like in Ethiopia, the truce hasn't resolved the conflict and there's a long road to peace, but it has alleviated the suffering. Much like the drought in the Horn of Africa, Yemen's conflict hasn't generated large-scale refugee flows, not for lack of suffering, but largely because Yemenis have nowhere to go and no means to get far. Misery at home is a necessary but an insufficient condition for refugee flows to build up. Refugees also need a place to go and means of transport, which suffering people in Yemen lack. As discussed earlier, Afghan refugees are also struggling in Iran and struggling to get out of Iran as Turkish border forces have made it nearly impossible to enter Turkish soil. Let's now take a quick look at asylum seeker mobility and immobility through Turkey. As of 2022, Turkey remains the world's largest refugee hosting country. 
with between 3.5 and 4 million Syrian refugees and another half million or so refugees from Afghanistan and other countries. Their presence has become increasingly politicized, especially ahead of presidential elections next year. President Erdogan, who initially saw an advantage in receiving Syrian refugees, seems to have lost interest in them, while his secularist opposition has used Syrian refugees as the perfect wedge issue to undermine Erdogan. The competing promises of presidential candidates now read like a bidding war, as each promises to deport larger numbers of Syrians more quickly than the other. In the last few days, Turkish President Erdogan has proposed yet again to relocate Syrians currently in Turkey into northeastern Syria, which would first require displacing Kurdish communities already living there, a formula which is bound to prolong instability in the region and to prolong displacement out of the region. In the meantime, Turkey remains a key pillar of Europe's externalization strategy, keeping refugees from arriving on European soil by fortifying its border with Iran and by preventing departures across the Aegean Sea toward Greece. We'll discuss Europe a bit further on, but for now it's useful to keep Turkey in mind as we move east toward Libya and reflect on last year's efforts in each of these countries to prevent departures toward Europe. In the last year, the Turkish and Libyan Coast Guards claim they have prevented tens of thousands of asylum seeker departure toward Greece and Italy. In Libya, human rights investigators have continued deploring atrocious conditions in asylum seeker detention centers, even discovering mass graves in eastern Libya. While Turkey has not been quite as hostile, civil society groups have documented over 150,000 deportations to Syria over the last year where abuse against returned refugees have been thoroughly documented. To understand why refugees suffer this degree of brutalization in Libya, and to understand why hostility toward refugees has become such valuable currency in Turkish electoral politics, we need to shift our focus toward Europe, where humane and functional migration policies remain painfully absent. In September 2020, the European Commission announced its new Pact on Migration and Asylum, a package of reforms it hoped to introduce in order to make its migration management procedures more effective and humane. Eighteen months later, however, few of those reforms are in place, and the measures that did pass have little bearing on forced migration. European authorities have spent the last year not looking for the right balance between protecting the rights of asylum seekers and setting up systems that are fast and effective to review claims, but rather just trying to prevent irregular arrivals to Europe. Full stop. After all, if refugees don't manage to reach European soil and lodge an asylum claim, then European states and institutions won't need to take responsibility, right? Wrong. European leaders have spent the last year trying to prevent migration as if it were binary. Either migration is happening, or it isn't, and looking for an off switch to prevent further arrivals. Migration, however, is a complex process with dozens, if not hundreds of switches and can only be managed if approached in that full complexity. Europeans' migration policy problems aren't caused by migration to Europe, but rather caused by the barriers that Europe tries to place in front of that migration. Barriers that are incompatible with its international legal commitments, including as state parties to the 1951 Refugee Convention. Even after contracting Turkish and Libyan coast guards to prevent most departures to Europe, 
EU states seem unwilling and incapable of finding a formula to host those refugees that do arrive, review their asylum claims, and offer them integration supports. And so they employ pushbacks, they drag out asylum claims for years, and they host them in inhumane conditions. Not necessarily by policy, but rather by default. The policy has become to neglect having a policy, and to let whatever happens happen to arriving refugees. Whether that means brutal pushbacks to Turkey, whether that means miserable accommodation in unsafe reception centers, or whether that means an interminable wait for asylum and status regularization in Europe. This phenomenon, where not having a policy becomes the policy, is not unique to Europe. The United States has been abusing the coronavirus pandemic to shut down access to its asylum system for over two years now, with xenophobic politicians fiercely opposing to repeal Title 42, an indefensible determination that says that, due to the risk that they might bring COVID into U.S. communities, asylum seekers must be expelled immediately from U.S. soil. Title 42 does nothing to reduce COVID transmission, but it does allow U.S. border forces to expel arriving asylum seekers without so much as recording their names and identity, let alone without letting them lodge an asylum claim. Much like their European counterparts, U.S. leaders seem to have settled on two refusals. First, the refusal to comply with existing policies, including domestic and international law. And second, the refusal to reform migration policies that they are no longer willing to implement. Whatever short-term benefit U.S. and European leaders think they might derive from violating their own laws to keep immigrants out, in the long term they are harming themselves, as much as the refugees and migrants being brutalized in the Aegean Sea or along the U.S.-Mexico border. Migration is the lifeblood of our contemporary globalized economy, and as birth rates drop in high-income countries, read, in Europe and North America, migration will be critical in sustaining employment and paying into pension schemes. So, Without entering into the morality of being open to migration, without considering our obligations under international law, there are plenty of purely selfish reasons for Western countries to be open to migration. The current posture of the US and the EU isn't just harmful to asylum seekers and migrants. It also hurts the US and the EU in the short and in the long term. It's also illogical. European states have shown in the response to the Ukrainian refugee crisis that it's possible to bring barriers down when circumstances demand bold, concerted action. What's good for the goose should be good for the gander. It's unconscionable and racist, frankly, to apply such widely differential standards to people fleeing conflict based on their nationality. We're now going to close out our global tour of the last year's worth of migration developments in Latin America where over the year, the focus has shifted from the Venezuelan displacement crisis to more dispersed displacement out of Central America and the Caribbean. Venezuela has been in a protracted economic and political crisis for years now, with more than 4 million Venezuelans displaced across the Americas. About 1.85 million are living in Colombia, which is in the process of offering temporary protection permits to about 1.5 million. Colombia's temporary protection scheme is similar to that which the EU is offering to displace Ukrainians. It allows arriving asylum seekers to bypass the asylum process and to obtain a residency permit and access services by just registering with national authorities. While temporary protection is generally a net positive, 
and support to keep in mind that people holding temporary protection have fewer rights than people holding refugee status. Notably, temporary protection is much easier to revoke than refugee status. So, while it's admirable that Colombia has issued 10-year temporary protection permits to over 300,000 Venezuelans and is processing another 1.2 million such permits, it'll be important over the years to monitor this situation and to watch for signs of politicization and emerging threats to Venezuelans' protected status in Colombia. After all, temporary protection is the status that Syrians have held in Turkey for the last 10 years, a status they are now at increasing risk of losing. And speaking of, it'll also be important to keep an eye on the status of displaced Ukrainians in Europe, given that unlike Colombia's 10-year temporary protection period, the EU is offering Ukrainians only three years of temporary protection, after which they could be forced back to Ukraine or into irregular status in their European country of residency. In addition to the massive Venezuelan displacement crisis, over the last year, displacement from Cuba and Haiti have increased dramatically. There have been more maritime crossings to Florida thus far this year than in all of last year, in extremely dangerous waters, with virtually everyone intercepted at sea or detained on land immediately repatriated, again without a chance to apply for asylum. Transit is also increasing through Central America and Mexico. The dense jungle of the Darien Gap in southern Panama is also seeing record crossings, and Mexico received over 130,000 asylum petitions last year, more than double compared to 2020. Asylum seekers transiting through Central America face immense risks, wanton abuse by criminal groups and by security forces alike, and so long as Title 42 remains in place, they have no options beyond Mexico which cannot possibly absorb and offer livelihoods to all of the arriving asylum seekers and migrants currently in Mexico, nor to all those transiting toward Mexico. All this while the US economy suffers labor shortages that hold down economic growth and drive up inflation. Go figure. I hope you found this recap of the last year's worth of Mixed Migration Ibdo useful and informative. If so, please leave a comment on this episode of Fractured and let me know if you'd like me to do this again. I could perhaps do it on a quarterly basis. Thanks for listening to Fractured, produced by Sonia Nanjik Herman, Joel Hernandez, and Refocus Media Lab citizen journalists, with a special support of Douglas Herman. Editing by Majid Bakshi, music by Eamon Kelly. Refocus productions are mostly possible thanks to our supporters, Allianz Kulturstiftung and Choose Love. If you want to know more about the refugee crisis and migration, we encourage you to follow Refocus Media Labs on social media and sign up for Joel's Mixed Migration Abdo newsletter. And if you're interested in supporting our work with refugees on Lesbos, in Athens, Berlin and Krakow, you can do so by donating to our Patreon on patreon.com forward slash Refocus Media Labs.